dangerously close. My guest today is Nathaniel Stinnett. Nathaniel is the founder and executive director of the Environmental Voter Project, a nonpartisan nonprofit that uses data analytics and behavioral science to mobilize environmentalists to vote. Named one of the five global climate visionaries by the New York Times in 2018 and dubbed the voting guru by Gris Magazine, Sunet is a frequent expert speaker on cutting edge campaign techniques and the behavioral science behind getting people to vote. He has held a variety of senior leadership and campaign manager positions on the U.S. Senate, congressional, state, and mayoral campaigns. And he sits on the board of advisors for MIT's Environmental Solutions Initiative. He holds a BA from Yale University and a JD from Boston College Law School. And he lives in Boston with his wife and two children. What's up, Nathaniel? Hey, Doug. I am uh, so excited for this conversation. Do you mind, uh, before I ask you uh, any of my first questions, do you mind if I share just like a like a short thing about why this is so important to me and on on not and not on a global scale, but on a, a like a local scale. Uh, I but, it, not only do I not mind that, I would love that. Yeah, because <laughs> like, oh, uh, obviously, um, you know, climate change is important to me on a global scale. The environment, everything, you know, it's this, and that's how a lot of us think on this major scale. But it's also really important to think about like what it's like at home. And uh, for me, where I live, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, I would say like over the past ten years, especially, you know, it's. It's, it's, I think it's been it's made some news that uh, so much of our, our wildlife, our forests, our rivers, waterways have been devastated uh, by developer developers and industry uh, because the regulations just aren't there to protect these wild spaces. And uh, it's one of those things, where, you know, I really I I want to know what it is that I need to do. What's, what's it going to take for me to get elected officials in here? that take this seriously, that don't just let developers and industrial uh, projects, you know, destroy habitats, you know, that's, and that's something. So it's something that I see in my very own home where I live, you know, I can, I can drive past the thing where I'm like, Oh, that used to be a, you know, that used to be green space. That used to be, uh, you know, this used this, this river used to be clean. You could go in it, you know, with your, you could swim in it and now you, you shouldn't. And so, that's something I just wanted to share from from my own personal perspective and why what you do is so important to me. So I just wanted to throw that out there first. Yeah, no, and I'm and I'm so glad that you did because I think everybody, no matter how much you know or don't know about the environmental crises that we face, it can't help but think of them as these huge, enormous, global scale problems. And they are, I mean, don't get me wrong, but yeah. they also have very real local stories and ramifications. And it's so important to understand those because ultimately most people care about environmental issues because they care about human beings. And, you know, human beings don't live on a global scale. They live yeah. in a, in a, <laughs> on a local scale. And so it's so important to hear stories like that because yeah, these big problems they do impact individuals in their daily lives and in really, really awful ways. So I'm I'm so glad you shared that story. And uh, like, just for instance, and I don't want to go on and on and on about Nashville, but I, I live in a downtown area. 
and and it's it's something you didn't used to see quite so much uh but i see a lot of like foxes coyotes deer uh but they're like you know in the street like in these they're in these major roads that you know where people are going 60 miles an hour and or you know i see them on my own street which is not you know people go 60 miles an hour down my street they're not supposed to but uh, <laughs> mine too mine too <laughs> but but the thing is you know at first i go oh cool a fox oh cool a, you know a deer like i like to see the wildlife but then i get sad because you know, i realize the reason that i'm seeing them in my neighborhood is because all of the habitat that they should be in has been it's gone and and i i want to hope and i want to believe that it's not uh irreversible uh but I guess, you know, that's maybe a subject for another day is, you know, how much can we save and how much can we re replace? But I guess what I really want to jump into is actually this is what uh, what you do in your organization, of course. Uh, and that's, I guess, like, but let's let's start from the very beginning with um, how was the environment, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> the environmental voter project created? Yeah, so uh, I founded it in 2015 and the reason i i created it was you know i come to this space doug not from the environmental world or the climate world i'm not a scientist i'm not a policy guru uh i came to it from the political world i'm a political hack but i've always cared deeply about climate and environmental issues and I was working on campaigns big and small, as you mentioned in your intro. And, you know, I I wasn't going to work for a candidate who didn't also care about climate and environmental issues. But every time we would look at polling data to figure out, okay, what are the voters in this election that we're trying to win? Like, what do they care about? Climate and environmental issues were way, way down towards their list of priorities. And that was enormously frustrating. Yeah. Because if you are trying to win an election, <laughs> you have limited time and limited money. And believe me, you can't use that limited time and limited money talking about the thing that voters don't really care about. Like that, yeah. that's not how you win elections. Yeah. And to be honest, Doug, I didn't I didn't see a way out of it. I just thought, like, oh my God, well, boy, does that suck. And purely by chance. After running a mayoral election here uh, here in Boston in 2013, I was taking some time off. Our first kid was about to be born. And I was looking at some polling data with a buddy of mine, and I saw something that totally blew my mind. And that was that in this poll, and it was a poll of, of midterm voters in 2014, so we're going way back here, eight, eight nine years. Uh, sure enough, people who were likely to vote in the midterms listed climate like two percent of them listed climate as their top priority really small number wow just just two percent yes two percent i know but i wasn't that surprised by it i'm like yeah okay this is what i'm used to seeing but when we looked at all the people who weren't likely to vote mm -hmm. it was up at five or six percent and i thought wow isn't that interesting? And I started to look at other polls and I kept on seeing the same thing. And it started to dawn on me that maybe the reason so few voters cared about climate and the environment was simply because all of the people who cared weren't voting. In yeah. other words, it wasn't a persuasion problem as much as it was a turnout problem. And to make a long story short, that ended up leading to the Environmental Voter Project. And, and what we focus on 
is not trying to change people's hearts and minds. We don't try to find people who are voting and convince them to care about climate or convince them to care about the environment or convince them to care about habitat loss. Yeah, That's hard. We, we, we want to skip all the hard yeah. stuff. Yeah. Instead, <laughs> we find the people who already care but aren't voting and then just try to change their behavior, which certainly isn't easy, but it's a heck of a lot easier than trying to change people's minds. And so that's what led to me starting this nonprofit. And we, we have a very narrow focus. We don't endorse candidates. We don't try to persuade people to care about climate or the environment. We just find the ones who are already with us, but they suck at voting. Yeah. And we work year round with cutting edge behavioral science, just trying to change their habits, trying to, to turn them into better voters, kind of like a, a personal trainer would work with you year round to yeah. try to change your exercise habits or your eating habits. Well, we do the same thing, but we try to make a an army of environmental voters. Yeah, that's that's amazing. First of all, uh, I mean, I know a little bit, you know, I've read I've read about uh, the project and, uh, you know, but still hearing you say it like that, I first of all, you blew me away with the 2%. I cannot believe that's because for someone like me, I would say like if I had to list my priorities, environment's at the top. If like when when I go to vote, that's, you know, if it's if there's a bill or anything that has something like that's going to be the most important thing I feel like I'm voting on there. So it's kind of surprises yeah. me that that so few people but I mean, it is like you said, it's uh, it's very encouraging to know that there are lots of people that do feel the same as me. It's just there there haven't been they haven't been uh, motivated to go vote yet or or now they are or a lot of them. A lot more of them are. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think you're right to react that way, Doug. Uh, you know, the first thing I'll say is, you know, it's no longer two percent. So that's the good news. Depending yeah. on the election, you know, four to five to six percent of voters list climate or other environmental issues as their top priority. But that's still way too low. Yeah. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, politicians just really want to get elected. <laughs> yeah. And so they're course. going to focus on the stuff that 20 or 25 percent of voters say is their top priority. And so, yeah, it, it's just. It's really important to understand that one of the biggest things holding us back, and by us, I mean, you know, people who care deeply about climate and environmental issues, is simply our lack of political power. We can't push politicians around the way a lot of other issue groups can. And we need to change that. We need more political power, period. Yeah. Um, can I ask a question that maybe like this is this is such a a broad and an enormous question. It's just kind of like everything you've been saying, you just kind of like put this in my mind. And I'm curious just to me, when you think, when I think about like, just let's just say just climate change, like not even talking about habitat loss or some of the things that I find to be like a little bit more heart wrenching, you know, when you see it happen, but just, but climate, which is uh, like an imminent threat to life on this planet and not just you know, mass extinction of species that are not human, but I mean, us, I mean, it could be, we could be seeing climate refugees from Phoenix with, you know, with the rising temperatures in just the city of Phoenix alone, that city is going to become uninhabitable because of policies and the fact that they won't stop building golf courses. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going on a tangent. I'm just saying, why do you think that it's, and it's totally fine if, I mean, I know this is a huge complex issue, but why do you think this is, is not something that's on the radar of 
of more people? Why is this not a 25% issue? Yeah. So a lot of it has to do with a lot of the biases that are kind of hardwired into our brains. You know, we are, our, our brains have been conditioned over millions of years of evolution to not be like a radar that constantly has 5 billion little blips on it. Right. Yeah. Like, like we can't notice everything we have to, yeah. we have to focus on just a few things or, or like we'd go nuts. <laughs> yeah. And, and for most people, not everybody, but for most people, there are far more present issues. And so we tend to bias and focus on those present issues, right? right. Being able to buy groceries, being able to, you know, if you've got an internal combustion engine, like being able to fill up your car with gas or what's going on at my kid's school and things like that. And so these are what we are conditioned to focus on. Uh, And then the second thing is, and I think this is something that's really important to understand when we're talking about politics, and that is the difference between preferences and priorities. Okay. There are huge majorities of people in the United States, like really huge majorities, 60, 70%, mm-hmm. who would prefer government action on climate change and would prefer government action on environmental protection. Like these are actually very popular issues. Right. But that doesn't mean they are salient. That doesn't mean they're top of mind. That doesn't mean they are the most important people issue that people are carrying around in their heads. Okay. And that's a big difference. That's a big difference because like, you know, just because 80% of Floridians prefer oranges to apples, like doesn't mean that's going to be a hot political problem. Right. And similarly, just because most Americans care about the climate crisis doesn't mean it's a top priority. And so that means that politicians can ignore it and they can especially ignore it when there are fossil fuel companies spending such an absurd amount of money on political campaigns. And so those are the two big things that are making this very, very big problem avoidable for current day politicians, because it is not salient and it is not present, at least for most people. Yeah. I, I do want to, and I promise not to go, uh, go off. Like I have, I've been known to do in the past on this. Subject. Go off, man. But it's your show. I, Go off. <laughs> I just, I, I have a, um, a, I, I think it's, I consider it like a little bit of an analogy. Maybe that's the wrong word for it. But when I think about uh, fossil fuel industry, uh, dark money in politics, uh, and when I think about the tobacco industry, like let's say from 15, not 15 years ago, let's say 20 years ago, when, when, you know, people were trying to say uh, tobacco, kills kills you it gives you cancer and emphysema and tobacco like the tobacco lobby was so powerful it could keep like congress kept just not passing the laws not doing it you know there was like it just it was it was like a juggernaut and but the crazy thing is if you compare the amount of money that the tobacco industry had compared to what the fossil fuel industry had these are these are not they're not even comparable industries. It's 
it's like an ant and an elephant. I mean, <laughs> like tobacco is not some, it's not in the same realm as gasoline and petroleum and plastic. And it's so something for people to keep in mind. If, if you saw, if you were, if you witnessed how powerful the tobacco lobby was 20 years ago, and you compare that to something that's exponentially more powerful, like for instance, the fossil fuel industry, you got to really see what we're up against is a, it's a lot more. That's exactly right. Additionally, the tobacco industry didn't have the single most powerful political weapon that the fossil fuel industry has, and that is the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. Yeah. So in yeah. 2010, when Citizens United essentially said, yeah, corporations are allowed to spend unlimited political dollars that changed everything. That changed yeah. everything. I mean, you know, it, climate and environmental issues have, have been partisan for a while. I don't want to pretend that, like, there used to be this perfect, like, nonpartisan utopia that we used to live in. Like, no, they, they've always been a yeah. little partisan. But yeah. holy moly, in 2010, Citizens United changed everything. Because at that point, it became close to impossible for Republicans to win primaries when fossil unless they did the bidding of the fossil fuel industry in most districts. Yeah. And I would I would say that Citizens United is the single most destructive decision ever made by uh, a government body. Yes. Yes. I, I'll say I, I, straight face. Yeah. I, I mean, <clears throat> the, you know, whether it's like John McCain or Newt Gingrich or a whole bunch of U.S. senators, I mean, Republicans understood climate science. They wanted to address the climate crisis. And then, it, I, I mean, in a matter of months, people became climate deniers. Now, you yeah. know, your listeners can't see me using air quotes here. Yeah. Like, like they, they weren't climate deniers. It isn't like they forgot science. Yeah. No, they, they were climate liars. All yeah. of a sudden, they could not win elections accepting science and pushing particular policies. And they, they, they had to start pushing different policies. And obviously that is depressing. It is frustrating. It makes us angry. But also at its core is, I think, a, a, a somewhat hopeful realization. And that is that this isn't some deeply held belief. It isn't like there are a whole bunch of politicians walking around Washington, D.C., who are just motivated each morning by the, the idea of destroying the environment. Like, no, yeah. but they're not like that. <laughs> yeah. What they're motivated by is winning elections. And right now, the easiest way for them to win elections is, for a lot of people, is to get a lot of fossil fuel industry money behind them. Yeah. But it doesn't need to be that way. It doesn't need to be that way if we start flooding the polls, not with fossil fuel money, but with environmental voters, because then we can start winning elections. It's almost as if, you know, you could say, not to be silly, but uh, that a lot of our senators and uh, members of the House are, let's say, it's like they are servers in a restaurant. And the restaurant, let's say, is owned by the fossil fuel industry. And everything on the menu is bad. But it's their job to tell the customers that it's good. And if they don't tell the customers the food's good, then the restaurant's going to fire them and they don't get to be a senator anymore. I mean, <laughs> if you want to just kind yeah. of flat out say, 
these guys are employees of the fossil fuel industry first and foremost before that they are a public servant yeah or, or just that they're far more transactional than we give them credit for yeah I, I mean you know I run a nonpartisan organization but but personally as I'm sure comes as no surprise to you I'm a, I'm a fairly progressive person but I I don't want to you know make it seem like this is purely a conservative or a Republican problem yeah like Democratic politicians need to go where the votes are too. Yeah. It, like it's the it's the basic arithmetic of how politics works. Either you go where the votes are or you don't get to be a politician anymore. Yeah. That's that's quite simply how yeah. it works. And 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 so it's incumbent upon us to make sure that it becomes harder and harder for politicians to win elections unless they are leading on environmental issues. Yeah. And obviously there are going to be lots of states and lots of districts where we just can't make that happen. And certainly Citizens United makes it harder. But at the end of the day, even with all of the money sloshing around politics and even with gerrymandering and all this stuff that, that warps the marketplace, at the end of the day, it's all about who gets more votes. Yeah, Which means it's all about whether we show up or not and force politicians to do our bidding. And so we ultimately, we still have power, not as much as fossil fuel companies, but in a lot of places, we can still beat them. And, and in that, yeah, exactly. And uh, for instance, just, you know, uh, some of the stuff I was reading about, like what you've done with the, uh, with uh, the environmental voter project, it is the numbers and it doesn't matter in some ways, it doesn't matter how much money, you know, how much dark money gets dumped into these, television ads and these uh, social media ads, if you've added 8 million new voters into the population who take the environment the environment as their number one priority, the the guy you know the, the guy that's shilling for Exxon it's not going to win because there's not enough people that are going to fall for it. So yeah, there's that's there, right. there's, there's hope. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean this is something that I think we all understand. But it, it's rarely explicitly stated when we read all these stories about the money being spent in politics. Like, yeah. if you are a fossil fuel, you know, front company or super PAC or things like that, you're not taking wads of cash and putting them in a politician's pocket. Like, yeah. the money isn't for the politicians. The money is being spent trying to collect voters to vote for the candidate that you want to win. Yeah. So it always comes down to voters. Like nothing, 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 nothing motivates a politician more than the prospect of winning or losing an election. Yeah. And so it always comes down to voters. And that doesn't mean that fossil fuel money isn't powerful. Oh my gosh, it's extraordinarily powerful. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's about voters. And yeah. Boy, are you right, Doug. If we can get the millions of super environmentalists out there who normally don't vote to start voting regularly, I mean, there's no amount of fossil fuel money that's going to be able to overcome that in most states, not everywhere, but in most states. And I guess this is actually the perfect time for my next question. I, I know we've touched on it a little bit, but my next question is like, what is the the mission of the environmental pro? Uh, sorry, I keep <laughs> I keep misspeaking when I say it. The Environmental Voter Project. Uh, sorry, sorry. Anyway, 
(laughs) that's okay it's it's our trick it's our trick to make you say our name over and over and over again we try to you know we try to make it difficult i think i've said it so many times in the past couple days that now it's becoming a a tongue twister (laughs) what is the mission of the environmental voter project sorry (laughs) we want to so dramatically increase the number of environmentalists who vote that any politician running for office anywhere, local, state, or federal, feels an enormous amount of pressure to lead on climate and environmental issues. That's it. We we want to build more political power for the environmental movement. Because the way we diagnose the problem right now is not that there are a whole bunch of well-meaning politicians, but gosh darn it, they just can't agree on the right policy. Yeah. Nor is the problem that, like, we don't have policy solutions out there. Like, no, that's wrong. We have all the policy solutions and technology that we would need to address the climate crisis and toxic air and toxic water and land use problems and habitat destruction. We've got all this stuff. Yeah. The problem is a lack of political power. Right now, most politicians don't feel like they need to lead on environmental issues in order to win elections. And so the mission of the Environmental Voter Project is to change that calculus. We want the environmental voting bloc to become so powerful that politicians, that that, that we scare the crap out of politicians. Yeah, They can't run for anything without saying, oh my God, I need to make sure those environmentalists vote for me. Yeah, That's our goal. Yeah, it's it's like how right now, a modern politician will be like, you know, especially on a, a state or local level, will be like, okay, I need to go to a banquet with uh, the police union. I need to get these guys on board with me, perhaps if that's what my goal is. Or I need to find a way to make sure that all these suburban liberals are on board with me. Like this is my, you know, these are these uh, swaths of voters that I'm trying to court for whatever reason. But if there was an entire, like, like you said, a whole section of environmentalists, these are people that are going to vote and they're going to prioritize the environment, the air, the rivers, the trees, the animals, and and there's tons of us. <laughs> they can't ignore those people, and they will have to do the same thing. They'll have to. They might have to have a banquet where a bunch of environmentalists come and hear what they have to say and see if they have any good policies. And that that would be a dream come true for real. That's right. And you know, a, 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 I think an apt analogy is the NRA. You know, the the NRA, for good reason, has been thought of as a very, very successful organization. But if you lift up the hood as people are becoming, you know, sort of more and more aware, it isn't that they have a lot of money. In fact, I, you know, I think they're about to go bankrupt. Uh, It isn't that they are particularly well run. It isn't that they actually spend a lot of money on politics. They don't. It's that they have helped create an army of voters, not non-voters, not regular old citizens, but voters who vote with guns and gun rights as their number one priority. And that, more than anything, is where their power rests, because there are a lot of politicians who know they look at this polling data and they say, oh man, 80% of Americans want tougher gun laws. 
And, and so many people look at that and they say, oh my gosh, if all these Americans want tougher gun laws, how come the politicians aren't doing it? What, what are they, stupid? No, they're not stupid. Yeah. Because as I just said, politicians don't care about what Americans think. They think about what the actual voters who show up in the elections and decide who wins and loses think. And when you look at that much smaller denominator of the people who actually show up and cast ballots, there are a whole bunch of districts where people who care deeply about gun rights can control who wins and loses elections. That's the kind of power we need in the climate and in the environmental movement. That's it's interesting how uh, some of these ideas, they really are simple. And it's the way it's the way you're even taught, like, you know, in in school, like this is how politics works. It's who, you know, it's the most voters. These are the kind of people that vote in. But as you I think, you know, as you get older, you kind of start to forget about it. I think you get tangled up in your own beliefs. And I'm sure that's happened a lot with me where, you know, I'm constantly like, why don't why doesn't everyone agree with me? (laughs) And and maybe a lot of people really do. Like we said, they're just not out there. They don't have a coalition like the NRA. And that I think that's it's in a way it's ironic, but also in a way I think that it's uh brilliant to try to emulate the NRA with the environmental voter project to to have a coalition of voters that are that powerful and influential. Yeah. And and you know, you're right that the the basic sort of arithmetic of politics is something that we all understand from a very early age. But there is one thing that a lot of Americans don't understand about politics. And, you know, forgive me, Doug, if I start pulling you and your your audience into the weeds a little bit here, but I think it's so important. Oh, feel free. <laughs> and that is the public voter file. So what most people know, again, from a very early age, is who you vote for is secret. And that's true. Mm -hmm. Who you vote for is secret. No one ever gets to know who you vote for. But what most people don't understand is that whether you vote or not, that is not secret. That is public record. It is public record. Anybody could go into Nashville City Hall and see which elections you voted in and which elections you don't vote in. Now, they'll never know who you voted for, yeah, but they do know what you know whether you just vote in presidentials or whether you also vote in local and midterms and primaries, and this is not a small thing. This yeah. very concept, the concept of the public voter file, is an essential building block to how all campaigns are run, and how all policy is made. Because let let me let me walk you through a scenario here from someone who's run dozens of campaigns. Let's say you are running for governor of Tennessee, okay. all right? And for better or for worse, Doug, you've hired me as your campaign manager, okay? All right, I'm feeling, <laughs> so, I'm feeling good now. <laughs> okay, well, well, let me walk you through our first meeting. And this is the same like first meeting that everybody has on every campaign. You open up your laptops, you're sitting around a table here, and you look at the public voter file for the state of Tennessee. All right, we have a whole bunch of people over here who aren't even registered to vote. We're not going to talk to them. We have some people over here. Oh, they are registered to vote, uh, but it looks like they never show up and cast a ballot. Okay. Oh, here are some people who do vote. Yay. But they only vote in presidential elections. Eh, you know, we've got limited time, Doug, and limited money. As your campaign yeah. manager, I'm going to say we probably can't talk to them. 
Oh, here are people who we know vote in gubernatorial elections. Yeah, let's definitely go after them. Oh, and here are people who even vote in local elections. They're like super voters. Let's go after them. Okay. And not to put too fine a point on it, not to be like creepy, but like we literally know these people by name and street address. Yeah. And this is how politics works. And so those people who actually vote in the elections that a particular politician is trying to win, those are the people who actually have policymaking power. Because the next decision we're going to make, Doug, on your campaign is now who are we going to poll to figure out what issues are important? Well, we sure as hell aren't going to poll the people who we just figured out aren't going to show up and vote. Yeah. Why on earth would we care what issues they yeah. prioritize? <laughs> they ain't yeah. voting. Just like if you're Starbucks, you're not going to care about all the people who don't drink coffee, right? Like they're not your customers. Yeah, they're not your customers. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. And so this is why it's so important to make sure that the people who care about your issues are actually showing up and voting because it is a literally public record who votes and who doesn't vote. And politicians are only paying attention to voters, not the non-voters. And you can't really blame them, can you? I mean, they're in the business of winning elections. Of course, they're not yeah. going to talk to non-voters. I mean, you're just going to lose. I, yeah, I guess it's kind of like, I mean, obviously, ethically, you should want to know what everyone in your district or your state or whatever you represent, you should care what they all think. But if you want to win, I guess it really comes down to they don't vote. So you got to talk to the people that do vote. They're the ones that that are going to go out and actually cast a ballot. It's your only chance of winning. That's, That's exactly right. And, yeah. and I know it sounds awful and cynical, but but like it is something we accept in every other aspect of our lives, right? Like you don't expect Ford Motor Company to try to sell a car to my five-year-old. Like yeah. My five-year-old doesn't drive. Yeah. <laughs> Why yeah, on yeah. earth would Ford <laughs> care about five-year-olds? Like, no, they market their cars to people who can buy them. And politicians market themselves to people who actually vote. It's funny that you brought up um, people that only vote in president presidential elections. Uh, no offense to most of my friends, but that is, I think, the voting uh, habit of most of my friends. and. And that's sad to say, because because uh, I'm like, you know, guys, the president, and I guess it's, you know, it's important to the president. Of course it is. But yeah, it's he's not going to affect maybe like where we live and what's going on right here or the things that I was talking to you about earlier where I'm like, hey, I really would wish they would stop, uh, you know, getting rid of all of the <laughs> clean drinking water, destroying all of the green space. You know, I, you can't expect the president of the United States to come care about development in nashville and and if all the vote all the people that here that will vote in local elections and gubernatorial elections if none of them prioritize that at all it never gets addressed that's exactly right it's exactly right i mean the same dynamic of politicians going where the votes are occurs at the state and local level too yeah i mean you know Mayors are going to talk about public schools and potholes if the only people who vote in mayoral elections care about public schools and potholes. And that's not to say that those are bad things to care about. It's Important. just that mayors yeah. need to win elections too. Yeah. And if you're thinking about climate policy and environmental policy, 
so many important decisions are made at the state and local level. We live in a country where most utilities are regulated at the state and local level. So the mix of fossil fuel energy or clean energy that heads into the electricity in your house, that is publicly regulated, usually at the state or the local level. Whether yeah. there is lead in your pipes, you know, the president isn't dealing with that. Maybe they can turn on the the, the money faucet a little bit to, yeah. to help replace that stuff. But that is happening at the local and state level. And even, I mean, you think about big city mayors, they have the ability to tweak zoning laws, parking laws, traffic laws, building codes. All of these things are enormously important. You want to stop all of these cars burning gas and polluting the air? Well, you need your state and local governments to fund public transportation. You want to stop you know, uh, gas furnaces from burning lots of fossil fuels. Well, you need to change zoning codes and building codes. These are things that mayors control. Yeah. And that is important to understand, one, just so, you know, your your buddies will start voting in these elections. <laughs> but two, remember what I said about, you know, sort of the numerators and the denominators of these campaigns, right? You don't win 50% of all the people in your district to get elected. Yeah. You need to win 50% of the people who actually show up and vote. Yeah. And because so few people vote in local elections, man, if you just get a few hundred more or a few thousand more super environmentalists to show up and vote for mayor, you can not only change who wins and loses these elections, but even if the same people keep on winning, they're at least going to look at their polling data and they're going to say, holy moly, where did all these environmentalists come from? I need to start talking more about how we in Nashville or we in Boise or we in Boston are going to address the climate crisis instead of talking about all these other issues that I thought my voters cared about. And, you know, not to introduce hyperbole, but it's in my nature. And uh, <laughs> to talk about like uh, just in a mayoral election, the mayor's the mayor's looking at the people that vote. Of course, that's what the mayor is doing because the mayor has to get elected and the people that vote, this is what they're saying. They're saying, we want, we want you to fix all the potholes, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. You should fix the potholes. Right. And we, yeah. and, we, and, and we want a new, uh, we want a new football stadium. we like this old football stadium sucks. We want a new one, a better one, like, like the city next door has a good one. And that's, and this ends up being the top priorities. Just, it's just, it's just, when you're looking at the voters, the voters want the, the stadium and they want the potholes. And so this is what the mayor is focused on entirely. And at the same time, a let's just say a mining corporation has come in and said, I've got a lot of money for you to help you get elected and get all these pothole people and stadium people uh, on board. All you got to let me do is do some mountaintop re removal so I can extract <laughs> some nickel and uh, poison all the groundwater. Mayor's going to let him do it because the mayor's just a politician. <laughs> and so the yeah. next day, you know, or not the next day, but, you know, a couple months later, you turn on your faucet, your, your water's brown. And it's because, you know, all you did was vote in the presidential election. I don't know. Like yeah, I said, hyperbole is in my nature. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And, and it's a good analogy. But even if, you know, it, even when we elect the so-called right people. Yeah. You know, even when your mayor isn't like some, you know, villain twirling their mustache, 
it, they still need to pick and choose what to spend their political capital on. It, it isn't like they can just snap their fingers and get whatever they want done. And most major American cities have fairly progressive mayors who probably do want to lead on climate and the environment. But if the voters who help elect them have other things that they prioritize more than climate and the environment, that's what mayors are going to spend their time and effort on. Like, like we, we need to spend our political capital wisely. And here's a perfect example, not of a mayor, but of, of, of a president, a president we probably all, all know and we remember this moment in time. When Barack Obama was elected, he had a veto-proof majority in the Senate, not for a very long time, but for, for a short time, and controlled the House. And two things were going on at that moment in time. They were trying to pass Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and there was the Waxman-Markey sort of carbon pricing bill going through Congress. And the Obama White House, and I say this as someone who was a fan of President Obama, I'm not trying to dump on them, and if you ask anybody who served in those first two years, they will tell you this story. They were sitting there and they were saying, okay, it's going to be hard to get both of these things over the goal line. Yeah. What are we going to spend our political capital on? Mm -hmm. And they were looking at polling data and they saw 26 or 27% of voters listing healthcare as their number one priority and 2% listing uh, climate change as their top priority. That's the 2% again. And like, if I was his chief of staff, I would have said, listen, dummy, you yeah. spend your political capital on the thing that like 27% of voters care about. Like, of course they spend it on that. And that's a perfect example of like, even the right politicians, even yeah. the good leaders can't just get whatever the hell they want. Yeah, They need to look at the voters and realize that there's support for them to lead on climate. Yeah, exactly. And and also like, you know, it those are tough decisions too because obviously healthcare is extremely important and it's totally. not just, it's not just, it's not just extremely popular, it's also extremely important like you can't but 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 you know what? I want it all, man. I want <laughs> I want people to have healthcare and I want to protect the planet that I live on. And this leads me to a question and I know this uh this might be difficult to answer, but I'm sure you've done a lot of research so um you're going to, you're obviously the best person to ask. Uh, and it's just that why don't some environmentalists vote? What, why aren't they? I mean, cause clearly they care. Why don't they go vote their conscience? Yeah. So there, there are some things that we know and some things that we don't know. And I think that's important to just say right up front, because at the environmental voter project, we do a lot of experiments. We try to be very scientifically rigorous and so when there are things that are conjecture, I want to be very careful and say like, you know, I, I think this is what's going on, but I don't know. Yeah. Because it's just, it's it's very hard to measure why people don't do things mm -hmm. uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. But let me tell you what we do know. The first is people who care deeply about climate and other environmental issues are disproportionately young, they are disproportionately people of color, and they are disproportionately lower income. Hmm. And what do those three groups have in common? Poor people, young people, and people of color? 
they are always the object of voter suppression efforts. If anybody anywhere is trying to make it harder for someone to vote, chances are they are targeting people of color, poor people, or young people. Yeah. And so we in the environmental movement needs to understand that ballot access is a problem for us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why a lot of our messaging at the Environmental Voter Project, yes, it's informed by behavioral science and we know it works, but a lot of it is just letting people know that there is an election coming up and these are the ways that they can vote. It's simple mm -hmm. access things. So that's one thing. The second reason why environmentalists are, are disproportionately awful voters is for decades, even generations, Doug, the environmental movement has been strangely apolitical. And here's what I mean by that. If you think about when you were a kid, what it meant to be uh, environmental, chances are you thought of you know recycling or picking yeah. up litter or maybe you know riding a bike instead of driving or changing how you eat or even now you know changing the electricity you consume and all of these are good things but they're all weirdly apolitical right like they have nothing to do with politics yeah whereas you know if you care about guns or you care about reproductive rights like you would never talk that way. You would you would just talk about politics. Yeah. And so we've we've grown up since like the 50s and 60s in the environmental movement thinking that the way to be a good environmentalist is by changing our personal habits. And I don't want to poo-poo that. That's no. very important. Mm -hmm. But it has nothing to do with politics and there's a reason why. There's a reason why it has nothing to do with politics. It's because the fossil fuel industry has spent hundreds of millions of dollars in PR campaigns, essentially telling us, hey, Doug, don't pay attention to that coal-fired power plant over there. This whole problem is actually your fault for buying a plastic water bottle. You mm -hmm. are the problem, Doug. You need to change, not us. Don't pay attention to our coal-fired power plant. It's not our fault. Which is, of course, total BS. Yes. But yes. they have they have changed the way we think about this environmental all these environmental problems so that we don't think of them as systemic political problems. Instead, we think of them as like our own fault, as as I, we're screwing up. I want to. I just have to step in here because I, this is one of the things that I have found the most infuriating about this. Just for for as long as I can remember, you know. But like when. When BP lights the ocean on fire <laughs> and and I'm being told that climate change is an issue of personal responsibility, that I don't recycle enough. You know what? I sh I ate a hamburger and I I did it. I'm the fucking problem. And that's right. <laughs> and and at the same time, these uh, cruise ships, you know, are just massive like cities floating on the ocean dumping tons and tons and tons of like garbage and human waste into the these delicate ecosystems and like we were just saying i'm these propaganda machines are saying it is uh it's actually your responsibility as an individual to solve this it's a you know what are you doing drinking uh out of a plastic water bottle you you monster so anyway right. i just i had to step in because i find 
that to be the most infuriating, maybe of all, of all things, is that propaganda mechanism that has made people think that it's that because even if every single person was did their best, we're, what are we like 15% of the problem? There's, you know, 85% of the problem is still going to be industrial. Totally, totally. Now, as someone who lives behavioral science, I, I don't want to say that it is unimportant what we do. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of came off that lives. way, and I'm sorry. <laughs> right, but but no, but but ultimately, you know, there's a difference between being able to affect change, which we are able to do as individuals, and being guilty, be being responsible for a problem, which we are not. We yeah. are not responsible for the climate crisis. Uh, 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 you know, 15 or 20 fossil fuel companies are poisoning our air and water and killing human beings. They are literally killing human beings. That is not your fault for getting a plastic water bottle or eating a hamburger. It is yeah. not your fault. Can you do something as an individual yeah. to change the world for the better? Absolutely. But it is not your fault that it got this way. Yeah. And, and I mean, to backtrack a little bit on what I just said, I do think that uh, when you have the opportunity to uh, use like a, a, uh, a canteen, like I, that's what I mostly use. I actually don't really use a lot, of, a lot of plastic water bottles. This, you know, this propaganda did work on me and I don't, I don't really eat a lot of hamburgers, you know, like I don't really eat meat that much at all, period. That's for a lot of reasons, but you know, a lot of it's really just because I don't, I, I hate that the rainforest is being burnt down to turn into cattle ranches for mcdonald's so you know yep. uh, so yes absolutely 100 i think that the person there is personal responsibility and people should take it and that's that's a good thing uh, of course it's and i agree with you 100 though the problem here is being guilted or being led to believe that we're the leading problem when we are last place <laughs> totally totally can i, can I uh can I ask you uh, something also that I, this is going to be a touchy subject, but it just has to be said because, I mean, and you, you've already brought up, I mean, we do keep coming back to fossil fuel industry and that might just be the answer, but why do some people consider the environment to be a partisan issue? Why can't this be something that, why can't, if you're a conservative, let's say, let's say you're not a politician, let's just say you're a conservative, why can't you care about climate change is that is that fair am i am i being a little bit harsh or am i am i making it more partisan the way i'm asking it no no i don't think you are and and it's i i just i don't understand i don't understand why yeah. does this have to be a why does it have to be for democrats to be environmental why can't this be both sides of the aisle i think it comes back to the fact that nothing motivates a politician more than the prospect of winning or losing elections. Yeah. And since Citizens United, it has been very hard for Republicans to win many primaries unless they deny climate science and subsidize big oil and gas. Yeah. And, and it's so important to to see it through that framework, not because I want everybody to be like hard-headed cynicists. No, just the opposite. I want us to understand that politics is so transactional that we are actually empowered as activists. We are empowered as voters. 
Because what was not the case was that anti-environmentalism is a bedrock value of conservative ideology. Like, no, that's not the case. Yeah. There are plenty of, of people who have conservative values who care deeply about the environment and want to address the climate crisis and accept science. The problem is, especially since Citizens United, it is very hard for conservative politicians to lead on those values. And so my, my hope is that like after becoming more and more and more cynical about politics, well, you know, your, your listeners will finally break through and realize that like, oh, actually, if politicians will do whatever it takes to get elected, that means that like, I actually do have power as an activist. Yeah. <laughs> I actually do have power as a voter because ultimately my vote is the only thing they care about. And so I, I think that's why it is partisan because it didn't used to be this way. It didn't yeah. used to be this way. And I'm not counseling that we should all come together in the middle and have a kumbaya moment. Like, no, I am not one of those people. Yeah. Like, like it, politics is about winning and losing. And most politicians just want power. So our job as people who care deeply about climate and environmental issues is to get so much power that we scare the bejesus out of those politicians. That's our job. Yeah. And if we can do that, then we're going to solve a whole lot of these problems. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's it's that glacial movement. <laughs> uh, can I, do you mind if I uh, share a very short anecdote that uh, I, I just heard? I believe I just heard it yesterday. It's about a rancher in Wyoming. Uh, just speaking about like what you were saying, like obviously not all people that have conservative values don't also care deeply about the environment. It just happens to be, you know, in Washington, it's a big problem because we've got Citizens United and it's making it hard for or basically impossible for certain people to do, you know, to get elected and do the right thing. Uh, but there was uh, this is what I was hearing. There was a, it was a mine. I don't know if you've heard the story. There was a mine in Wyoming and they were digging up uh i don't even know what they were what kind of ore they were going for but they were doing a lot of these like very very destructive practices you know like some of the like the worst type of mining you can do and it had poisoned uh all the water so this rancher he's a cattle rancher was like i can't you know my i can't water my cattle now because of this and first of all i want to say that I, cattle ranchers are oftentimes some of the most conservative people you're ever going to find on the planet but this guy was like this is wrong, what they're doing to our land and the environment. And he became an activist. He created a whole movement. He beat the mines, uh, ended up becoming a sole proprietor of that land, and then wouldn't sell back. To, there was a, several of the ranchers that uh, wanted to buy their part back. And he's like, no, because you kept reselling. Because the, 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 a, new, a new mining company would come in every few years, uh, drill out the stuff, and then get out before the lawsuits hit. Right. And then, so they've been doing it forever. And there's like, he's like, no, anyone that ever sold to these uh, mining corporations, you can't have your land back. It's this is protected land now. So that's just a story of a guy. Right. I don't know him personally. I don't know much about him, but I'm going to go ahead and assume he's a Wyoming cattle rancher. He's got some pretty conservative values and he clearly gives a shit about the land. And on the other hand, I would say that a lot of these politicians, uh, you know, that are running uh, on a conservative ballot. These are people who uh, hold law degrees from Ivy League schools, who 
mostly, you know, eat fine dining and, you know, wear $10,000 suits. And then when they, when you see them in their ads, they're in a giant muddy pickup truck with a giant gun, you know, shooting a rifle out of the back of their pickup truck. <laughs> and so, you know, that's the performative politics side of it. I know that was a huge tangent, but I'm just no, saying. It, it, no, it, it wasn't a huge tangent. I, I mean, I think it it shows two very important things. And that is that, you know, the, the first is that most environmental issues uh, fit perfectly within both a progressive value system and a conservative value system. And that's important to realize. Yeah. And then the second thing it shows is that again, you know, I'm sounding like a broken record here. Politicians go where the votes are. Yeah. They go where the <laughs> votes are. And and again, I I don't want to make it seem like it, it, Republicans are the villains, like Democrats do it too. Yeah. I'll give you know, you know, give you an example. I happen to think that Bernie Sanders is is very good and one of the most like honest people in politics. You know, when all he cared about was winning statewide in Vermont, he actually had a pretty good score from the NRA. Oh, really? And then he completely changed his views on a lot of gun issues when he ran for president. And can you blame him? No, can you blame no, him? Yeah. <laughs> no. And and Bernie Sanders, I am holding up as, as maybe someone who is uh, one of the most courageous politicians when it comes yeah. to saying things that are potentially unpopular. And so I don't want to hold him up as a villain. I'm actually holding him up as someone who is perhaps more heroic than most politicians. But he's got to play but the game. You, you don't get to be a politician unless you get enough votes to be a politician. <laughs> yeah. like it's just yeah. how it works. It's just how it works. And so, again, it it is it is both incumbent on us, but also it should be empowering to us to realize that ultimately politicians are going to come to voters. And so if we vote, if we vote in every single election up and down the ballot, even for dog catcher and library trustee, politicians are going to follow or they're going to be out of a job. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a brutal business. Cause you know, it's like, um, you know, let's say, uh, you don't, you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to shove people. You don't want to push people. It, it, it makes you feel bad. You don't like being mean, but you, but you want to be on the hockey team. That's the game, man. If, if you want to be on the hockey team, you got to go on there and you got to shove people. That's so it's kind of like in politics, you got to go in there and you got to do things that maybe you you would prefer not to do if you were a private citizen. I just, I don't know. I don't know if that's a fair analogy, but it's, I, I'm a, a real analogy machine today. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I did want to like, cause I know we've kind of gone into some, some of the, like the, the, the less happy places in here, you know, talking about citizens United and some of these other things. So what I really did want to ask though, uh, maybe just uh, like going up to a, a brighter point. Uh, what are some of the greatest successes that the Environmental Pro Voter Project has had uh, since yeah. it started? So I'll I'll think about sort of something on sort of a grand scale and then something on a small scale. So so first on the grand scale, since we launched now about six, a little bit over six years ago, we have canvassed and called and texted and mailed and sent digital ads 
to over 8.7 million individual voters. Obviously, some of them we've communicated with tons of times for lots of different elections. Mm -hmm. And every single one of these 8.7 million individuals listed climate or some other environmental issue as their top priority. And they were a pretty awful voter. Because if you don't have those two things, we're not going to bother reaching out to you. Yeah. At the end of last year, over 1 million of those 8.7 million, we had helped be, helped to become such consistent voters that they had voted in their most recent federal election, their most recent state election, and even their most recent local election. They had become super voters. They had gone from non-voters to super voters, such that even if there is a library trustee race, these environmentalists are now showing up and voting. And that is something that we are enormously proud of because those million new voters, yeah, they can really, really drive policymaking. Now, we've got a whole lot more work to do because there's still 9, 10, maybe even 11 million non-voting environmentalists still out there. Not yeah. to mention every year, a whole bunch of new young people and young people tend to care more about the environment start uh, registering to vote and we need to help them become consistent voters. But but that is something we're enormously proud of and we're very grateful to our donors and our volunteers for helping us make that happen. The second thing that we're really, really proud of on sort of a smaller scale is... My guess is many of your listeners remember January 2021 when there were those two U.S. Senate runoff elections happening in Georgia mm -hmm. that ended up deciding control of the United States Senate. Well, over a billion dollars were spent in those two elections. A that billion with a insane. B. Insane. Insane is, is correct. So much money. A billion dollars. We... Little old environmental voter project, we spent five hundred and fifty thousand. Not a small amount, but nowhere so close a to a billion yeah. dollars with a B. We could tell from our randomized control trials, these are very rigorous scientific experiments. We could tell that we were solely responsible for boosting turnout of environmental voters. 0 0.9 percentage points. Now that might not seem like a lot, but almost one percent, that's like everything in politics. Yeah. Ask Donald Trump how big a deal 1% is in Georgia. He'll tell you. Yeah. We were solely responsible amidst all that noise, boosting turnout of environmental voters almost one percentage point. And that is something else that we're enormously proud of because yes, our ultimate goal is this long-term growth of power in the environmental movement. But we also recognize that the only way to turn a non-voter into a voter is to have them vote in an election. And even in these really expensive, busy, important elections, our volunteers and our data scientists are doing such good work that we're isolating the right people and the right messages to deliver to them, that even in those huge elections, we can make a big, big difference. And, and we're so proud of having those election-specific impacts, but also those long-term impacts. Yeah. I mean, and that's... That's the thing is like when you look at these numbers, too, like uh, you might know this number better than me, but I, what is it like 150 million Americans don't vote or something like that? Does that sound like about right? So, yeah, so, I mean, so it's obviously different from election to election, but yeah. yeah. But like 
a million folks, that's a lot of people. And, and, like, and like you were saying, uh, you know, creating an entire percentage point, especially in a place where there's such a slim margin. Uh, you could think that this, this is the kind of thing, you know, if you, know, you continue to grow, you get enough people that are environmentalists, they don't vote. Now they do vote. Now they're a force. Maybe this is just a dream. I'm I'm just throwing a dream out here, but maybe next time that billion dollars could be spent uh giving it to like the top researchers on climate change uh, for like the best solutions to some of these problems or uh a billion dollars to protect to to purchase and protect whatever a billion dollars worth of rainforest costs, you know, like right. so, so so many things that billion dollars could have bought that would have been so so good for the world so you know this grassroots uh approach uh man it would be just amazing if the dream you know if that if if it's just like it's a force they got to deal with it they got to reckon with it they you know they can't be bought these people are here for for the environment might as well spend your money on saving the environment i don't know <laughs> that's right that's right and and the the great thing i mean i mean no matter how proud i am of all of the experiments that we do and how precise our messaging is and things like that. The, the, the dirty little secret of why we're so successful at the Environmental Voter Project is simply because we're really stubborn and no yeah. election is too small for us to get involved with. And so I also think it's important to understand that these points of leverage, these moments in time where we can make a difference politically don't just happen once every two years when there's a big, sexy federal election going on. No, they happen all the time. Whenever there's a primary or a special or a local election or a state election, for two reasons. One, many of those local elections can actually control important environmental and climate policies. But even if they don't, because the, let's admit it, there are plenty of races that have nothing to do with environmental policymaking. Yeah. Those elections still have a lot to do with changing voters' habits. And so even now, you know, the end of January in 2023, the Environmental Voter Project has already been involved in 11 different elections. Not because all of them are important when it comes to climate policymaking, but because all of them are extraordinarily important if you're trying to change people's behavior. If you're trying to talk to non-voters and get them in the habit of voting more often. And so if anybody is interested in volunteering to mobilize these voters, they can go to our website and sign up and volunteer for a phone bank. It's completely nonpartisan, but we know who these voters are. We know the messages that we need to deliver to them to turn them from crappy voters into consistent voters. And all we need is this manpower yeah, to get it done. That is, that's uh, that's exactly literally where I was just about to go. Was uh, what the thing was? I was a little bit concerned about sounding like a hypocrite because I know I got on my soapbox a little earlier in the podcast and talking about how, uh, fall, you know, BP shouldn't be telling me to take individual responsibility for anything. Uh, <laughs> however, I think we, I think I did a pretty good job of backpedaling there and saying individual responsibility is important. And that's what I was going to say. And I, I know you just started talking about it, but uh, what can people do as individuals to help? What can they do for the Environmental Voter Project? What can they do uh, maybe in their communities? Like what 
what can like i mean just so people like you know feel like that there's a way to, to uh take action right now like what's what can they do yeah so so they can first they can go to our website environmentalvoter.org and it is extremely easy to just say oh yeah i want to sign up for that phone bank uh, or I want to knock on doors, or I want to send postcards to these non-voting environmentalists. We will train you over Zoom. We'll train you online. You can do all this stuff from your house. We will give you the messaging that we know works. You're not going to be twisting someone's arm to convince them to care about climate or to vote for a particular candidate. It's a very easy ask. You're talking yeah. to people who already care about these issues. Yeah, they're already they're on your side. To vote. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so that's a very easy thing. The second thing, you know, we are a nonprofit, but it takes money to mobilize voters. And so we run on donations. We would always welcome donations, even if it's a buck or two. It makes a big difference. And then the final thing I would just say is even if volunteering or supporting our work at the Environmental Voter Project isn't right for you, what you should always do is recognize that all of us have power over our friends and neighbors. And that power comes from the fact that we are a social species. We yeah. look to each other to see what is appropriate behavior. And so for all of your listeners, I would say, if you care deeply about climate and environmental issues, be loud and proud about the fact that you are a voter. Because when you are posting on Instagram, or when you are talking to your friends or things like that, they are looking to you. They are looking to you for cues as to what environmentalists do. And if they see you and they say, oh, well, he votes all the time because he cares about climate or he cares about the environment, that is going to make them more likely to do it too. So yeah. be loud and proud about being an environmental voter because Absolutely. we are a really hyper-social species and you need to let everybody know how important this is to you. I couldn't agree with that more. That it, yeah, be loud, be proud of who you are. Yeah, tell your friends what you what you think and feel. Tell people that disagree with you what you think and feel. I I, I would want to share one little thing because there's a there's a guy at the dog park. He might be listening because he uh, he knows about this podcast. But the, he all the podcasts he listens to, in my opinion, are the opposite of me <laughs> they're the opposite of everything i stand for he's a very uh let's just say his beliefs are really 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 oppositional to mine but he's a nice guy and he's funny and we walk we, we take our dogs to the park at the same time of day all the time so i talk to him all the time but you know i'm chipping away at him i, I feel like because i because because you know he's he's a nice guy and we're civil and he knows that i'm I flat out disagree with everything he believes in. And I know that he flat out disagrees with everything I believe in, but I'm just sitting there and I'm like, yeah, well, man, think about it like this. Think about it like that. You know, like I don't, you know, I don't let him uh, just get away with anything he says. And I, I, I'm starting to believe, I think I'm getting through to him. I think I am. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and oftentimes, you know, you know, getting through to someone can mean a lot of different things, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't mean you need to, like win an argument and force them to say, oh, I was wrong, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's about subtly creating this permission structure for them to realize, you know what? I can be conservative and still care about these things that progressives care about too. 
Yeah. Or I can still be a guy who likes to watch, you know, Fox News, but also thinks that we should not like cut down all the trees in this beautiful forest next to the dog park. Yeah. And and they're not going to come to that realization on their own. They're going to come to that realization talking to people who they share things with. Maybe not all of their value system, but share things with. And it works both ways. Maybe you'll come to realize that this guy who you disagree with on a lot of stuff, actually, like, maybe you do agree with him on this one thing. Oh, yeah. And that's okay. That's yeah. totally okay. And again, I say this as someone who doesn't, like, like fetishize moderation. I am not a political moderate. Believe me, I am not. <laughs> I don't think that we should always just try to agree. No, but I, I do think we should always talk to each other and recognize that there are these points of agreement and we should not shut them out. You know, it's very funny that you mentioned that because we do agree on like, so here's a, a I'm not going to go off on this, but there's a perfect example. And we both agree that big pharma is a little out of control. Uh, right. But sadly for very different reasons, do we believe this? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not going to get into it, but I'm going to say that the reason he thinks that big pharma is out of control is not the right, reason <laughs> and but i think I, like last time we spoke i think i got to him a little bit i was like i was like well yeah their lobbying is a, a, is out of control the money and you know getting into the it's out of control but i was like but some of these other things you're saying are wrong <laughs> <laughs> you got to take what you can get man you got to take what you can get <laughs> uh nathaniel man i just gotta ask you one more question i know you just said uh so much but just so uh no one forgets uh the website uh, in case anyone wants to volunteer, uh, where people can follow you, uh, of course, and the Environmental Pro Voter Project and any other resources or anything else you'd like to share. Yes. So thank you. Thank you. So our website is environmentalvoter.org. As far as following me uh, on Twitter, I'm N.C. Stin. So for Nathaniel Stinnett. So N-C-S-T-I-N-N, -N, or they can follow the Environmental Voter Project at Enviro underscore voter. On Instagram, we're at Environmental Voter. Uh, and we have a YouTube page. You can search for us. Facebook, we're, we're, we're all over. And awesome. again, get involved. Get involved. I promise you, if, if you don't like it, then just stop. No one's yeah. going to like force yeah. you to <laughs> yeah. keep on volunteering, but give it a shot. Yeah, we make it so easy and I can take credit for this because I had nothing to do with it. It's all of our like organizing staff, yeah. man, they make it so easy for people to volunteer and most people end up loving it and coming back for more. So give it a shot. Give it a shot. I speak from personal experience. When you just get out and volunteer, especially for something that, uh, you know, that you really believe in, man, it makes you feel just at the end of the day, uh, that's, uh, an uh, just a completely unique feeling. It's a good feeling and it's kind of unlike anything else. So I highly recommend it. <laughs> uh, Nathaniel, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come on the My Views Around podcast and talk to me, man. Well, it was my pleasure, Doug. It was so awesome. I loved this conversation and I just, I appreciate you having me.